Shrinkwrap Radio number 817, Joanna LaProd, Ph.D., Transformation Forged in Darkness. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Shrinkwrap Radio, all the psychology you need to know when just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today, Joanna LaProd, PhD, is author of the 2022 book, Forged in Darkness, the Many Paths of Personal Transformation. She's now the founder of Aeon Psychotherapy and a practicing Jungian psychologist in Colorado. Her therapeutic work focuses on helping clients find a meaningful connection to their inner worlds. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Joanna LaProd, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm really glad to have you here. I'm excited because we're going to be discussing your 2022 book, mm-hmm. uh, Forged in Dark- Darkness, The Many yep. Paths of Personal Transformation. And before we go any further, let me say that uh, your book is beautifully written. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, you've really earned your Jungian stripes. And, oh, that's and, very and, that's very meaningful. Thank you. Yeah, and, and it's worth it's a worthy addition, I think, to the to the literature. Mm-hmm. And I'm impressed. You know, you you write about things that have been written about by so many other people, often very eloquently. Things like um, archetypes and heroes mm-hmm. and goddesses and all of that, and yet you've really got into it and made it your own material, mm-hmm. and so it reads. Fresh and deep in its own way, mm, so I think that's you. a that's a real accomplishment. So, my my hats off. See, <laughs> my hats off. I to you. appreciate that. Um, <clears throat> so I'm particularly inter- interested in your own personal journey, and we'll mm. I'll be asking you about that. Uh, how did you come? It, it's I'm aware that this book is adapted from. Is it a doctoral dissertation or yeah? Yeah, it's it's a it's a much easier read of my doctoral dissertation. I can imagine. <laughs> uh, I'm aware that this book is adapted from your doctoral dissertation uh, at the in the Jungian program at Pacifica mm-hmm. Institute, yeah. which I have some familiarity with and know some of the people that have come through there and who who have taught there. So how did you come to write about the underworld? Mm. Well, you know, as most good stories begin, I think in some ways I had to write this book because in some ways it's my own questions and my own journey that I think as a person and my own kind of inner work, I too wrestle with. Mm-hmm. And the origin of the, I think the question that eventually seeded my dissertation was as I talk about in the book, my younger brother had a very serious brain injury. And in the kind of initial throes of that, when there was so much uncertainty about what was going to happen or if he was going to live, one of the things that people said to me all the time was be a hero. And, you know, this rhetoric, I think we throw it around really lightly and it was, or, or, you know, like he's a good person. He'll be heroic or he's strong. He'll survive. Yeah. Yeah. Or, um, you know, your, your family needs a hero. And at the time I was just trying to keep my head above water and didn't really understand that until my brother, you know, who ended up surviving and we got the miracle that we, you know, all were hoping for. And after I began around that time, I began my master's at Pacifica 
And this question was really interesting for me of what is heroism and why do we tell ourselves that heroism looks like strength, goodness, victoriousness. And I would say over the years of my degrees, that question really percolated in me. And when it was time for, you know, to write the dissertation, I had no idea what to write about. And Mm. my mentor at Pacifica was like, print the title of every piece of um, paper you've written and tell me the themes. So I did that and it was really profound. It was like everything I wrote about was death and rebirth, the ego's challenge of contacting the unconscious, the hero's journey, the importance of archetypes and myth. And when I laid it all out, it was like, oh, yeah, there's never been another choice here for me. Uh-huh. Right, right. And um, I think for me as an individual, a lot of what this book is about is what do you do in yourself when you encounter these deep and dark places, whether they are within yourself as an individual in your own inner journey or, you know, that which life often gives us. And really the curiosity coming from this question of why do we tell ourselves that we have to kind of underworld go into those places in one way that it's about victory and that form of heroism Mm -hmm. that is about strength Mm -hmm. and courage and willpower and domination. And that for me in my own personal journey, I think looking back retrospectively and seeing that there was a point where carrying that willful sword was crushing me and crushing my, my capacity to actually be present for what was happening for myself, my brother, my family yeah, I have and, the impression that you you wanted to be heroic, that you tried to take that on. Uh, <clears throat> you were going to be brave and uh, yeah. and and kind of help everybody else in the family get through this. And yeah. so I, I understand what you're saying there about it becoming kind of a a crushing thing and and not as authentic as you wanted to be. And it became, I think it became narrowing, which in some ways I think is the the heartbeat behind my book and these questions for me is realizing, you know, hero as archetype, the energy of heroism is about the human capacity to, you know, know that something in the old life has been worn thin and is no longer energizing or in alignment and make that incredibly challenging step that is to kind of go out symbolically into the world and encounter, you know, whatever needs to be encountered that causes a transformative journey that we then come back somehow, you know, larger or more ourselves. And that archetype, has so many, as you know, as the great mythologist Joseph Campbell reminds us, like so many faces. And we in our culture take heroism to only be that narrow way that I wrestled with. Yeah. And I think that's really the great question for me and in my own experience is realizing, wait, I still need to be a hero. I still need that incredible energy to encounter something much larger and much more terrifying than what I know how to deal with. But I can't do it willfully and determinatively and be strong, which seeded the question that became the entire dissertation and then book, which is there are many different ways that heroes go into the underworld. What are they and how can we use those images to access hero Uh, within us without limiting us? Yeah, Campbell did write the hero with a thousand faces and maybe we've just seized on one or two or three of those culturally. Exactly. And one of the things that you observe about uh, our culture is that we live in, in a culture that doesn't tend to value that judgment, or yeah. excuse me, that um, that decision uh, to go that direction. That mm-hmm. we live in a culture that tries to be up and happy and cheerful. Yeah. It's kind of the message that we get, you know, that otherwise you're not much fun to hang around with. No, we're so we are so hygienic and we are so intolerant of, you know, the deep and dark places in life. And I think many of us, you know, not only are we not taught to go there, we're not taught to value that we're not taught to explore who we are in those places. Instead, we're asked, you know, to fix it, be better. We have such a short timeline for that. There's such enormous pressure in our culture to be happy, to be on the surface, be in control, to look good. And with that, you know, there is, there is 
such a, a growing disconnection from the kind of deep interior spaces. And I think, you know, ironically, in the march of human history, which I talk about in my book, you know, one of the very first things we did as a species was relate to the unknown, relate to the afterlife, relate to burying our dead. And it this new phenomenon where we don't have an active relationship with it right. is actually much more unfamiliar for the human condition than having a relationship. Yeah, We've in never the great sweep of time, yeah, there's exactly. been more of a relationship in, among so-called primitive peoples, for example. And last night, actually, I was watching something on... Uh, streaming on TV, and they were talking about Nietzsche, and I didn't know that much about Nietzsche, and he really railed about that very thing. That mm -hmm. was the big driving force for him. I didn't realize mm -hmm. that, that um, he felt that we need to, to rise above that and be willing to uh, face our, our dark places. Yeah, absolutely. And you've even turned underworld into a verb. You talk about <laughs> underworlding. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Talk about yeah. that. I think, you know, I the the use of that I think is a is a tipping of my hat to how active of a process it is, you know, to how hard it is that mm -hmm. this 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 journey we make into the dark places within us or you know what happens to us in life is ongoing. It's a verb. It takes so much mm -hmm. energy and presence and consciousness and, you know, to be with. And I think that in some ways is a part of why our culture, who is very mechanical about the psyche and very um, organized to kind of fix and do, has yeah. turned these experiences within us into, you know, kind of problems that you medicate and you take three steps and you get over, right. rather than saying, hey, turns out here's the brutal truth you know for the Nietzscheans here's the existential truth this is a part of life and it's not going anywhere and and it's not just one and done you're saying it's, yeah, it's a process and, done. and um <clears throat> yeah there was another thought I had that just escaped me um I was wondering do you offer any uh warnings in the book I I didn't catch that if it's in there that not everyone is suitable to yeah. undertake this journey into the underworld. I do. You know, I think I, I, I talk about, you know, what the Jungians would call, um, you know, ego strength or ego stability sure. in the sense that there are moments and there are things that happen to us in life that are so overwhelming at that time that perhaps on some level, we don't even have a choice to go into the underworld. Perhaps the psyche has disassociated for us. Perhaps we've kind of, you know, had this, self-care system wake up and pull us out and perhaps we are too overwhelmed and too vulnerable and that kind of further unraveling mm. won't be constructive i would argue that eventually that journey is required but in the beginning of a lot of things you know we need a certain amount of containment it's like we have to be prepped for surgery to do surgery yeah. and i think that noticing that and not rushing and saying, okay, you know, I just lost somebody I really care about. And it's in time for me to face this right on. It's like, whoa, 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 take your breath, like contain yourself, be there. Yeah. That darkness is not going anywhere. I think in my own teaching, I've been a little glib about, about the dangers, about there being no mm -hmm. danger and just kind of assuming that everyone has the resources. Unfortunately, I know of cases where uh, people have sought to go to to really explore their shadow and go into those places, maybe maybe because they're in a program like that or something. And for some people, it's been uh, not good at all. Yeah, um, it's been so, overwhelming. And, and that's yeah. kind of, you know, in the Jungian world, Jung is really clear. And, you know, you brought up Nietzsche, so I'll tie this into him. But I think Jung in his own work and life had an enormous fear of Nietzsche. And he felt like Nietzsche was an example of somebody who had dived very, very deep into who they were and could not contain the flames that they found there. And so he was right. devoured by them. Yeah. And Jung yeah. was very afraid of that in his own work and life. And I think that seeded in some ways the what he would call ego strength, which was basically that that the the the, the light of kind of conscious determining awareness that creates continuity of identity has to be steady enough 
that there can be a differentiation. Yeah. Um, you, you began to go into your story about your brother, Ben. Can you tell us a little bit more about, uh, about what the accident was and what the impact of it was on his, on, on his brain, I believe. Yeah, my, so, you know, it's a very random, crazy series of events. My brother was at the, with his girlfriend at the time, um, outside of Santa Fe in New, York, in New Mexico and fell off a horse and broke his femur. Ooh, and know. in adults, when a femur is broken, the fear is that fat or marrow will get out of the bone, which can be really caustic to the body. So they seal the bone. And so he went to the hospital and they sealed the bone with, you know, whatever, whatever that is. Yeah. And, and whether it was the sealing process, cause they put a rod in it to like kind of stick it together or the marrow had already gotten out. For whatever reason, Marrow got out of into his bloodstream and kind of circulated around his body and um, got into his heart. Like when it reached his heart, he has a small, a lot, apparently like one in 10 people have them. They're like these small little holes in, in the heart. And so the um, Marrow passed his atrial wall and into his brain and showered his brain in like hundreds of thousands of small strokes. And wow. so... He was like life flighted to the neuro ICU in Denver, um, where he spent a month in a coma, induced coma, where they did all this really incredible and really crazy things to try to calm his brain down, calm his body down. Um, you know, that type of thing is so uncertain. We were told, you know, there probably wouldn't be cognition if he woke up, um, you know, because the like the extent of the strokes were so it's almost like the pictures of his brain looked like the night sky and each little star would be like a replication of a stroke. It was just so pervasive and so layered. And, you know, for whatever reason, when they lifted the coma about a month and a half later, my brother woke up in a lot of ways, I think with an enormous journey ahead of him as far as healing, but with also very much, who he was still intact. And, you know, the doctors were like, you know, we don't get it. This isn't the scan to the reality. And, you know, we'll just take what we can get. <laughs> you know, uh, there's another dimension uh, f- personally for you was that you and he shortly before this happened had had a discussion about God. Mm-hmm. And uh, tell us a bit about that. And also, I believe that you had, you know, your own dark place was suggesting that, well, maybe you caused this somehow or, you know, that that you were implicated. I don't know if I ever felt that I was implicated in it. Um, Before my brother had an accident, I was living in Jackson, Wyoming, and we had this conversation where we were kind of, I don't know, my brother and I are very close and we were kind of talking about the dailies. And then we started talking about some more challenging things. And to, you know, be more self-disclosive, neither of us are particularly religious. Um, but we were talking about this idea of kind of like letting the larger things in life decide uh-huh. for you. And where is your control and where do you not have control and when does fate step in and just asking these questions and, you know, the way that my brother framed it was maybe you should let God decide. And I frame that in the book as maybe you should let your darkness decide in the sense that, You know, I think for me, it was a really powerful conversation that I spent a lot of time on in my head with the thought that maybe it was my brother and I's last conversation. And, you know, why was it this conversation, right, about fate and letting a larger hand take over in your life and being okay with that and feeling like... And fate did step in in a big way. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know... For me wondering, you know, is this the message, you know, for me to hold in this space from my brother before this started that like, hey, fate has happened and, you know, you have to let it run its course through you. And I think for me, part of, you know, to weave us back into what I was saying about the hero earlier, I think for me in the beginning, it was this enormous effort in myself to just willfully, like by my presence alone, keep death out of that door. Like it was not going to fit in a room that I was in Uh and spent, you know, all the nights sleeping in his room and all our days with him and trying to take care of my, my sister. Well, 
my brother, I mean, excuse me, my mom, my dad, you know, my sister, everyone just being like, I will hold all of this at bay. I think until I realized that that form of heroism was making me miss the opportunity that was. What was the tipping point for you? How did you come to that uh, difficult decision? Or maybe it was somehow forced on you from within? It was, you know, it was forced on me. And I talk about this a little bit in my book as a synchronicity, which, you know, is what Jung would say is, you know, when the inner world in some capacity gets mirrored in the outer world, Mm -hmm. and there's almost an affirmation. And, you know, so in my family, to back up a little bit, um, my family had all like had little animals. We growing up and my parents were like, you're like this, you know, little totems. And my brother was a bear and um, I was a bunny. And the, one of the things that I thought a lot about and one of the images I thought a lot about when he was in the hospital was him as kind of this like great hibernating bear and yeah. just saying like, it's okay, you can rest, you can heal you can be in your quiet space and, you know, spring's going to come and soon you're going to need to wake up. And I would spend a lot of time like just trying to like channel that image into his body as, you know, I held his feet or his hands or whatever it was. And, and I was thinking about this and the way that I imaged it was this like sleeping bear in this cave and sure. like a little bunny outside of it, you know, uh-huh. And um, bunny doesn't sound very powerful, though. No, I don't think it was very powerful. (laughs) But, you know, and maybe that's the wisdom in it for me is that here I was, you know, trying so hard and I was so exhausted and so determined, as I'm sure those of, you know, you that are listening know what it's like to willfully keep life at bay. It takes a lot. And I, one afternoon, I was doing this practice and was so like just so emotional and overwhelmed. And I went downstairs to um, this little garden space that they had at the hospital. And there were these little bunnies Mm. and I was sitting on the bench and there was these little like cotton wood bunnies that I noticed just like, right. I mean, just staring like right at me, there was two of them. And it was so powerful for me because I think to your point, I felt this like, need for something softer in me and need for something that was sweet and small and open. And it was, I think I was feeling that in myself and not knowing how to access it. And then seeing the little bunnies was like, Oh yeah, this is it. And I'm missing everything because I'm, you know, holding so tight. And if this is what's going to happen to my brother in the sense of if he transitions from life, like I'm not going to be there for it because I'm, you know, just like this. And I think in a lot of ways, that's the experience that, that made me believe in what I later wrote in this book, in the sense of, you know, sometimes that, that, that kind of Rambo Terminator hero that we all think we should be is not actually strong enough. And that vulnerability and that softness, and there's a different way to be heroic. Um, which our stories of myth really highlight and show. And that was kind of my movement, I think, into that and in myself. Yeah, yeah. And so in your book, you begin to go into uh, uh, some of those concepts. And uh, I've got got the index in front of me, so I'm kind of scrolling through that. And um, you talk about the descent and the ascent uh, and Campbell deals with all of that. You you go into some heroes and some gods, and uh, I'm trying to think what's the best way for us to bring that into our conversation. One idea I had was uh, you mentioned four heroes, Hercules, Orpheus, Odysseus, and Aeneas. Uh, I don't know if you want to give us a thumbnail journey through each of those or or if you want to talk about what resonated for you most uh, in this situation among this collection? I mean, maybe I'll just, you know, I think maybe I'll start that with, you know, that the meat of this book is about, there are so many other heroes and gods that go into the underworld, meaning they, they give us kind of a metaphor for that journey down into the darkness that we all experience and the journey back up. And they do it in 
what happens to them, how they respond, their mythic qualities can give us styles of imagining other ways that we too could make that journey that are archetypal and thus available to us, or maybe already moving through us. And we just need to notice that are not Hercules. Although I, I do talk about Hercules because he is one form of, you know, of underworlding and a really valuable one, but he's just one. Right. And, um, I think for me, out of those four heroes, my favorite hero is Aeneas, and he's the hero that I resonate the most with, or at least want to resonate the most with. Well, tell us um, about Aeneas. That's not one that I'm super familiar with myself. I'm sure others so, out there aren't as, as well. Sure. And also, I got hold of the thought that I meant to make earlier, which is uh, this is and you're clear about this, this is not really a self-help book. I interview mm -hmm. so many people who've written, you know, heroic mm -hmm. self-help books. Yeah. I'm a little exhausted with that, but, I, you know, people want to get interviewed, and so I'll probably continue to do that. Um, but uh, you really emphasize, and I think this is important, that each person has to find their way in their own journey. Yeah. And that these these images that are offered to us through uh, Greek and Roman uh, mm -hmm. uh, heroes and gods and goddesses can offer, can suggest some things or yeah. some pieces of it might resonate with us. So I yeah. kind of interrupted where you were going with Aeneas. No, we can, we can tab Aeneas and come <laughs> back and it'll be a good example of what, of what we'll talk about. You know, I think, I feel, you know, and I think this is as this is my role as a therapist and clinician is, you know, people come asking, they want help, right? When we are in dark places and the lights have gone out, we want that help. And I think it is a mistake to assume that there is five techniques, seven steps, or 10 things to live by that will cure you of what you are experiencing that mm. come from someone else. And Perhaps there is some kind of soothing solve that we think that's creating, and I just don't buy it for the longevity of life and experience. Right. And so I think what I'm encouraging in this book is a harder path. It's self-awareness. We have to understand who we uniquely are as people and get curious about what our challenges are, what our underworld is, and what resources we have. If I say to you, hey, you will feel great if you go and paint, and that's not your way in, that won't feel right for you. Mm -hmm. right. So a better question is, you know, what is a way in for you? That's self-awareness, right? What and, and, and us turning towards ourselves to start asking, what parts of the psyche dominate for me? What are the tools that I have? So that when the lights go out, I know that there are parts of me that are able to respond to that. And I think one of the reasons I use myth in this is, you know, the mythic stories are archetypal. So archetype comes from the Greek archi, it means first or first principle. And the idea of an archetype is the way that I like to imagine it is a kind of a vessel, a form. We all, the psyche has many forms of, of things that we expect. Yeah. Mother, yeah. war, father, battle, right. lover, divine child, wisdom. You know, there are so many on the shelf. But depending on who we are, what culture we're from, what epoch we're from, all of the details of individuality and nuance mm -hmm. will pour something different into that vessel and it will right. constellate something unique. But we still throughout time, immortal share these structures. So if I say to you, you know, the, you know, the idea of say mother, we're both going to have an understanding of what those qualities are, but our mothers and our relationship to mother will be really different, but we yeah. can still have an archetypal understanding of that. So to translate that to the underworld, you know, I think what I'm trying to encourage is recognizing that in the darkness, there are archetypal experiences that happen to us and archetypal ways of navigating that, how you are going to uniquely navigate that. No one can answer that except yourself and your experience. And, but you can be aware of, oh, wow, you know, this is sacrifice. This is reverence. This is you know, giving up, this is music, this is longing, you know, you can see these archetypal experiences that the mythic, 
journeys kind of really enliven for us as parts of your own life and your own self. And that's what you're saying around, you know, kind of giving us possibilities for being able to notice and work with, with what is happening in us. But as far as kind of saying reverence is going to look like this for you, that's not the work. Mm -hmm. The work is what is reverence for you and where, you know, where could that be useful in your own understanding of what you're encountering? Yeah, I and, get a sense of, of how you work in therapy from what yeah. you're saying. And uh, again, uh, to echo what I said at the beginning about the book, you're doing a really good way of, of speaking about complex topics yeah. and make, making it very clear and graspable. Well, you know, and I think and this is maybe my own little side tangent, but, you know, I think one of the things that is so challenging as us in the modern era as an individual is we have really disconnected ourselves from tradition and symbol and kind of the, the, the once very nourishing aspects of what was shared in the collective that helped us understand what right. it meant to be human and what our place in everything was. And with that discontinuation, there's so much um, kind of guidance and stability that is lost and so much put on the kind of modern individual to find their path alone. Yeah. And I think looking at things archetypally and mythically, I find in my practice, you know, people are starved for that. Mm -hmm. They they feel so, it feels good. The soul like gets cozy and does a little jig when, when we pour that really old, rich, known thing on it. And I think for a lot of people, you know, saying to them, your journey reminds me of this myth or what you're wrestling with makes me think of this story. People are like, Oh, yeah, because they can see themselves in these kind of timeless stories in a way that connects them to the to, you know, all of those that came before us. And it's very nourishing for our kind of loneliness. Do they come to you for that? Do they know they're going to get that ahead of time? Or um, um, I would say it's about half and half. Okay. You know, as a Jungian, there are those that come that are like, oh, you're a Jungian and yeah. want want Jung's perspective. And then there are those that don't. And then I have to train them. And they and then and then I'm either a good fit for them or I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. Um but to circle back to Aeneas to kind of give us an example, um, so Aeneas is Aeneas's story is most popularly known, written by the Roman Roman port, poet Virgil in the Aeneid. And Aeneas is the last the the highest ranking survivor in Troy after the fall of Troy. So he's kind of the last Trojan prince, so to mm. say. And he leads his people away from Troy with the task of finding and founding a new place for his people. And of course, much of the Aeneid is his struggle and his people struggle moving around and all the different things that he does. And at some point in, which is a point in most heroes journey, he is told he needs to go into the underworld to kind of find out, his future and what is really going to be asked of him. And so Aeneas does some things that no other hero does. First and foremost, he does, he assumes that he cannot do it by himself. Right off the bat, he's like, I can't, I won't be able to go into the underworld by myself. So his mother, um, who is Aphrodite, the goddess of kind of pleasure and beauty, tells him to go to this Apollonian, um, uh, priestess named the Sibyl and she, she might guide him. So Aeneas goes to the Sibyl. He asks her if he can, if she would take him into the underworld. He makes a lot of sacrifices. He prays. He does these series of kind of initiatory tasks in the beginning mm -hmm. that I think show us, you know, I won't go into too much detail because, you know, it'll take too long, but you know, show us these questions around like, what is it like for us to admit right off the bat as an individual that something larger must guide you into these deep places? Mm -hmm. You know, when we when we know what I am facing is far bigger than uh, than me, and maybe I need, you know, my religious or spiritual backgrounds, maybe I need nature, maybe I need a therapist, maybe I need a mentor, you know, the, the realization that what is before you is something that you don't want to handle alone. And no other hero does that. Everyone else barges right in and is like, I've got it. And mm -hmm. Aeneas has an enormous amount of reverence in him. He has enormous amount of recognition of where his own limitations are. 
and some humility. Goes, yeah, an enormous yeah. amount of humility. Yeah. And no other hero shows any of that either. <laughs> yeah. And but you know, and what I'm saying in these questions, right, is Aeneas is one of the great heroes of the world. He is eventually the founder of Rome as the father of Romulus and Remus in the uh -huh. mythic tradition. Right. So we're not talking about some kind of nanny sissy. We're talking about one of the major heroes that that constellates that archetype so profoundly. Hmm. And I think what it's showing us is heroism, all that incredible energy of transformation, it can look like humility, it can look like reverence, it can look like knowing your limitations, that's heroic. And, you know, we don't think that way, right? We have a very different image of hero. And so Aeneas, when he just starts descending into the underworld, he gets this incredible tour, so to speak, of the underworld where he meets past friends, past lovers, the Sibyl is explaining the kind of order of the underworld, what happens. And Aeneas does something really interesting in that space is he only asks questions. And he, well, he asks a few questions, I should say that, but he mostly listens. And even in there, I think you see a deepening of Aeneas reverence in the sense of what would happen to us in our journeys within ourselves or the challenges of life if we met it with the attitude of what is asked of me right now is just to listen. That something is showing me something that is larger and bigger and more complex than me. And I, my task is not to do, to change, to direct, but to just be with and listen. It's a really mm -hmm. different attitude. And Aeneas more so than any other hero, or I would say really mythic figure gets a, the deepest tour of the underworld. He's shown more, not because he demanded it. He asked, you know, he got in there and dug around because he opened himself to it. He listened. And Aeneas's purpose in going into the underworld is to see his father Anchistus, who has died. And he journeys to, you know, where Anchistus is in the Elysium fields. And his father is so grateful to see him. And Aeneas kind of, he has this really sweetness, in my opinion, about him in the underworld. He cries a lot. He sees the sadness in people. And he talks about in the, in the Virgil talks about him like reaching out for his father, but realizing that his father is dead and is not his to kind of claim or to hold, but just to be with. And it's a really powerful moment, I think, because you know, how many of us can let things just be the way that they are. It's such a hard human thing to do. Not most of the heroes descend into the underworld to somehow get something out of it and tamper with what is done there. Yeah. And Aeneas yeah. really, he's a really different hero. He just recognizes the place of it all and lets it be. And he asks his father, you know, the question he came to ask and his father tells him his future, what is required of him, to, you know, find, found Rome, the order of the universe. And, and Aeneas, in his kind of humility, his reverence, his quietness, his listening, he gains so much knowledge. And I think that way of navigating our hardship is not taught and not encouraged in people. And, you know, I think no. for me, Aeneas is a real enchanting figure because I think those parts of myself are the hardest for me to access, but I want them because I understand they are balance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a wonderful uh, presentation. <laughs> I, I want to thank you for that. I'm, I'm identifying sure. with a lot of it myself. Yeah. And uh, I was also thinking of what's going on in the Ukraine and the leader mm -hmm. there and the kinds of uh, archetypal forces that he's dealing with. Yeah, absolutely. And, and he's seems to be placed in a very heroic and acting out a kind of uh, heroic role. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's move on down to the gods. You mentioned uh, Hermes, Persephone, Dionysus, and uh, and you've got a section there, kind of a wrap up section, I guess, forged in darkness. Um, what resonates for you particularly in that section of the book? You know, the the as as kind of an archetypal quality, the heroes and gods represent different things in us. You know, a hero is very human, although most heroes have kind of a divine, half divine. They're mostly demigods, but <clears throat> the hero 
is about the human experience of transformation and growth. It is about the part of us that is struggling through to become more of who we are. The gods do not do that. They are not struggling to become, they are. And so they're a very pure archetypal energy that I think you can almost see in different heroes' journeys, if that makes sense, that separation. And so I think the reason why I did both is kind of encouraging people to notice even in their heroic journeys, you can have hermetic or Dionysian qualities And because the gods, they are the archetypal energy. And one of the things I think psychologically that's really rich about the Greek pantheon is that the gods are just completely batshit crazy. And (laughs) they're like, they're, they're paradoxical and contradictory and they have really nasty elements of them and really wonderful elements of them. None of that is ever spoken about or talked about in any way that is like, how should Hermes change? How should Apollo be a better person? None of that. It's just is. And I think it can invite an enormous amount of paradox in us. Uh-huh. You know, who who has these different pieces, right? Where you're, <clears throat> you know, you're violent, but you're pure, right? And like these, con- we're not really encouraged to hold tension in our psyches, nor are we encouraged to have paradox. We're very... monotheistic in our thinking of selves. And so that's kind of a round way into saying that's why I picked working with the gods. Um, For me, I think my favorite divinity to speak about, well, they're all so rich and yummy, but I really think for us in the Western world, we should all kind of pay attention to our Dionysian elements. Dionysus is a really repressed energy in modern culture Dionysus is the god of kind of the wild and the primal. He's the, his main epithet was Lysos, which means loosener. So he was, he's about what rips us apart, what tears us apart. He's a very primal energy, very bestial energy, very instinctive. The Dionysian psyche is really untamed, is really chaotic. Um, it takes a lot of containment to our earlier point to kind of truly be in the presence of Dionysus. And Nietzsche wrote like a ton about Dionysus. And I think. Yeah, he, I got that from the thing I watched last night. Yeah, yeah he was very, he was very um, interested in that tension between right. Dionysus and Apollo. And, you know, we are taught not to be Dionysian really, really young. You know, sit down, yeah. write your name in the right tent. Right-hand corner on a straight line. Like, that's the beginning of the end of Dionysus, where you could be feral and wild and kind of in your body and out of control. And, you know, I think for a lot of us, especially in really dark moments in life, there is a part of us that wants to be that open, you know, to scream, to be uncontained, to release you know, Dionysus is the great loosener. He opens our bonds. And I think for in our world of control and priority and perfection and order, that energy, that kind of tempest is really terrifying for people. And as it should be, I think Dionysian energy should be treated with respect, but it's also an archetypal energy. It needs to belong. And, you know, I think I feel this a lot as a therapist in moments where, and I'm sure you have seen this where people kind of, it's like you see them wanting to break open and then it's like, no, I can't, like, I can't hear, I can't show this. I can't, you know, and this kind of tapping back together when it's like, maybe that breaking needed to happen. Like the presence of Dionysus needed to be in that space where we lose it. And, you know, but I think also one of the things that, Dionysian energy and ritual can also teach us about this kind of really unbounded energy is, you know, in the Greek religion, the Dionysian festivals were celebrated once a year and they were celebrated in community and they were Mm -hmm. followed with fasting. So you would have this huge release that was collectively a part of, you don't do it by yourself. You're not drinking in the Mm -hmm. basement. You're doing something together. And then there was a recognition that with this huge loosening and opening, there there needed to be some kind of refinements and containment, yeah. right? The fast. And I think, you know, there is a way for all of us to to find our way into the parts of grief, loss, trauma, suffering, complexes, shadow work, anxiety that has that radical capacity to break open and devour 
with enough containment that we can benefit from the loosening, but not get lost. And, you know, what Campbell calls riding the back of the Dionysian leopard, you know, it's not an easy thing, but we are really encouraged not to be Dionysian. Yeah. Yeah. So where did that touch you during this period that you went through in relation to uh, Mm. what, what happened with your brother and so on? I think, you know, I think it's the, it's, 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 it's a great question. Um, I think, you know, to be honest, I'm not sure I fully understood nor allowed the Dionysian part of myself. I think I felt it. I think it was, you know, like the times in the night where you'd wake up and you'd think about what was happening and you wanted to just like scream or cry or just like wail or keen or just like this huge thing needed to come out of you. Or, you know, like even in the hospital room where it's like everything is so ordered and contained and there's tubes and beeping lights and everyone's quiet and you're like, inside just everything is storming and it's like I just want a place where I can be so broken but I don't know if I let myself go there I think I was probably afraid of what that would look like I think I was probably afraid of feeling it to be honest and not knowing what to do with that energy I think you know And it makes me think of, you know, since writing this book and since really falling in love with these ideas and, you know, the deaths and loss that I've experienced since then, I think I have been able to see the archetype for what it needs to be and have your space where you just kind of fall apart and show that. And then there's something I think with release that, you know, allows us to not be afraid of it. You know, it's like so much that we repress and lock away. And I would say Dionysus is very much of this category becomes terrifying because we haven't allowed it. You know, how many of us are running from, you know, the grizzly bear our whole life when in fact that grizzly bear just wants to have tea with us. You know, I think that, you know, that huge release is terrifying because of the huge release. And when you allow yourself to kind of be in a more primal crying, screaming, unfiltered space that you also get catharsis, right? Dionysus is absolutely the God of catharsis and release and theatrics and expression. And with that, you get healing, right? It's like, okay, good. I can let that piece go. And it's not as scary as I thought it was to just like go out into the yard and scream because you know, my life is falling apart. Maybe that's why some people become actors, because it gives them license. Yeah, it's a, it's a stage in and, which all of that is celebrated. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you have any plans or ambition to go on and become a certified Jungian analyst? Oh, it's the ultimate question of my, <laughs> my own analytical work. Um, I would love that very, very much. Um, I think, you know, for me, I, I finished my doctoral work three years ago now. And when I first finished the doctor work, I was like, I'm ready. I'm straight, straight into analytical training. And my analyst, which is, was very wise was like, you haven't had the right dreams, dreams yet. Like you haven't, you're not ready for this. And I think, I think for me, it's very true. I think I needed to live in life a little bit and step out of the kind of cocoon that is high academia for me and, you know, do some other things with my life and mature into, I think, what analytical training will eventually be about for me. Um, But I would love to very much so. I mean, it's a it's I, I wish it wasn't so long if I'm 100 percent honest. I know it's very long and uh, very long. But uh, you impress me as maybe already being there. I'm sure that's yeah. crossed your mind <laughs> as well. I, no, it's it's very, you know, I think in some ways I, I joke with my my clinical supervisor because a lot of analytical training is your own analysis and clinical supervision in by a Jungian analyst in um, uh, in your cases, which I do both of. And so she always jokes, she's like, just don't even do it. You're already doing it. And I'm yeah, like, it oh. feels that way to me, not that I'm 
especially qualified to make that judgment. But uh, no, it would be it would be a really cool um, experience. It would be a lot of legitimacy. It's it's a funny thing being a, a Jungian um, at a PhD level, which is the highest degree in a field, and not being an analyst isn't quite enough. Uh huh. Yeah, it, it's kind of a luxury, isn't it, to move on to uh, you have to be able to afford it and to create a real big space in your life, I would think, for it. To, yeah, it's to move it's in. so it's so many years. And so we'll see. You know, I think there yeah. are questions of my own life that need to settle. But I as far as what I would want, if I could wave my magic wand, absolutely. Yeah. Who do you think this book that you've written is for? Mm, it's a great question. Mm. Um, I want, which I, which is part of why your accolades in the beginning mean a lot to me. I, I want this book to be approachable for anybody. I think it's an easy, it's a very, very easy fit. If you're interested in myth, mm -hmm. if you're interested in Jung, if you're interested in Campbell, it's just going to be like, you know, jam on your toast. It'll be really, really yeah. great for those that don't already have those passions. I feel that Jung is, is very hard to get at. I think yeah. Jung himself is, is enormously challenging. The Jungians have kept themselves classical and elitist and at the top shelf. And I think that talking about Jung can be a lot easier than it is. And so I think for mm -hmm. anyone who's interested in analytical psychology, I don't by no means is this just a full unpacking of Jung, but there's enough elements in there that I, I've worked really hard to make not be one of those books that you can't understand. Um, right, right. And you succeed. I, you know, I for many years, I taught a course called Myth, Dream, and Symbol, uh, mm -hmm. undergraduate course, and uh, typically would have about five books that were assigned. But, uh, you know, if I were doing that course today, I would really can seriously consider having your book be in that mm -hmm. mix. I appreciate that. That's really yeah. meaningful. But yeah. I think, you know, to further the question, like this book is for those that want that self-awareness piece that understand that, you know, what if this priority and this pressure that we put on ourselves in life to be perfect, to be in control, to be happy you know, if the feelings that you have in yourself don't match that, which I would argue most of us don't, and want an invitation to looking at what could be the value in understanding these really deep and dark places in life and facing them with the uniqueness that is your person, this is a great book for you. Yeah. Well, that's a wonderful pitch, and it's a good place for us to wrap it up. Yeah. So, uh, Dr. Joanna LaProd, I really want to thank you for being my guest on Shrink Wrap yeah, Radio today. Yeah, thank you today. so much for having me, and I appreciate the, the time and the opportunity to talk about my passion. It's super meaningful. Yeah, yeah nice to meet you. Uh, yeah, nice to meet yeah, you, too. Pleasure, pleasure for me. I had an especially delightful interview with my recent guest, Joanna LaProd, Ph.D., who had done her doctoral work at Pacifica Graduate Institute, a well-known and highly esteemed school specializing in Jungian and archetypal psychology. It might seem a bit paradoxical for me to rave about our interview being delightful, given that we were discussing her 2022 book, Forged in Darkness, The Many Paths of Personal Transformation. In fact, her book was born out of intense personal pain, triggered by an accident that befell her brother, to whom she always had been very close. In fact, the day before his accident, they had a soulful conversation in which they had reflected that maybe the best course in these troubled times might be to forego worry and anxiety and just trust their destiny to God or some higher force. Neither was especially religious. That trust was to be put to the test the very next day when her brother fell off a horse, breaking his femur. That sort of accident sounds unfortunate, but very survivable. However, he needed a bone marrow injection 
Somehow the bone wasn't sealed off correctly after that injection, and Merrill leaked out into his bloodstream with dire consequences for vital organs, including lungs and brain. Joanna and her family were in considerable distress, unsure if Brother Ben would survive or end up with lasting brain damage. Joanna, who was in her first year of Jungian studies at Pacifica, felt she needed to be the family hero, to be the strong one for her devastated parents and siblings. As time went by, though, she felt that sense of responsibility becoming a crushing weight. This unwanted tragedy turned out to be her call to adventure, to go into her own inner darkness and confront whatever demons lurked there. Her doctoral dissertation provided an opportunity for her to reflect on that journey and see it in the light of archetypal understanding derived from myths, stories, and rituals. In other words, to shine a Jungian light on her experiences. And with more time, she was able to transform an academic dissertation into a very readable and relatable book. Myself, a longtime fellow traveler of the Jungian persuasion, was delighted both by her personal presence and by her wisdom, depth, and skill in weaving her narrative. In her book, she writes about the hero's journey, archetypes, Greek and Roman heroes, gods, and goddesses. There have already been many excellent books plowing these fields. I'm impressed by how well she was able to internalize this literature and make it her own. In our interview, I sincerely compliment her on having earned her Jungian stripes. Let me share a couple of examples of her writing to give you the flavor of what I'm speaking about. Quote, Working with the psyche's stories and images doesn't proffer a one-stop cure. That's not the point. The point is in being with, allowing the psyche's images to work with you, to have presence and energy in your life so that you can feel the deeper currents of yourself. Close quote. Since I interview many authors of self-help books, I sometimes find myself skeptical of their easy claims. I like that Joanna makes no such promises. She writes, quote, This book is not a prescription nor a solution. It doesn't offer a timeline promise or a way to measure success or progress. It simply encourages turning toward ourselves in ways that are imaginative and soulful, open and curious, about the parts of us not yet known or explored. This undertaking is vast. Quote. If I were still teaching the myth, dream, and symbols class that I did for so many years, I would make this book one of the assigned texts. Again, it is Forged in Darkness, The Many Paths of Personal Transformation by Joanna Laprade, Ph.D., and by the way, Brother Ben has responded well to rehab therapy and will be able to take up his own career. Hi, I'm Heather. I'm a graduate student, and I was really excited to stumble upon Shrink Rap Radio and an article with an author whose articles I've been reading recently. It was very cool to hear. I chose to send a contribution to Shrink Rap Radio because I really want to support this kind of grassroots educational initiative that's being done. I made a small contribution and I figure, you know, for every, I, I gained something from it to, by listening to it. And I would like to support that being out there for other people to hear. And, and I just, it's a really cool thing that you guys are doing. And so thank you. Thank you, graduate student Heather. Thanks for taking the step to make yourself part of the paying shrink wrap radio community. And of course, thank you to all you other monthly supporters. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks again to today's guest, Jungian psychotherapist Joanna Laprade, Ph.D., and author of the 2022 book Forged in Darkness, The Many Paths of Personal Transformation. Thank you to her for being such a lively, deep, and engaging guest. 
My next guest will be Bernard Beitman, M.D., author of the book Meaningful Connections, How and Why Synchronicity and Serendipity Happen. This is one of my favorite topics, and I'm really looking forward to what he has to say. So I hope you'll join us. Until next time, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.